Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning. All right, we're right in the middle of this teaching series we're doing this fall. We're calling it Ready for War. And the basis of what we're trying to teach this fall is this one concept. That once you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you are thrown immediately into a spiritual battle that demands you fight. And if you don't fight, you will lose. But if you do fight, you can win. And this spiritual battle takes place not out in the flesh, in the world, but it actually takes place between your ears, in your mind. It's in your thoughts, your attitude. It's in your imagination and your interpretation of the world. It's the way that you think about things. It's in your mind. And those things, like your thoughts, your attitude, your imagination, your interpretation, all those things form beliefs about God, about this world, about people. And about ourselves. And we form false beliefs because our minds are affected by sin. And the object of this war is to let God, through His power and His might, lead us into the tearing down or destroying of all of these false beliefs that we have that drive us to sin and keep us isolated from God and trapped. And this is done by the gospel of Jesus Christ that reshapes and renews our mind so that we become like Jesus Christ. But the problem is not just that we have a war going on and that we have been partaking in that, that we have formed false beliefs, formed by the sin that's in our minds, but we also have an enemy against us who wants all of those false beliefs that are in your mind right now to stay so that he can continue to hold you captive away from the one who really cares and loves for you. He uses things like temptation, which is really the filling of our pride that lures us into doing things indulgently because we want something for ourselves. He also uses accusation, which is despair that is overcome by loathing over ourselves. He uses either one of those things, and he's fighting actively against us to win. Well, today, that brings us to what we're going to talk about here from Matthew chapter 16. And hopefully it's going to bring some encouraging news to you. You know, there's nothing more demoralizing than fighting a losing battle. It just saps you. It drains you. You know, once you know that you cannot win, it becomes emotionally and mentally and even physically exhausting to fight in battles that you know you're not going to win. For Christians, in this spiritual battle, this experience is more than just exhausting. It should also be confusing. Because if you turn to passages like Romans chapter 8, we see some phrases there from the Apostle Paul where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or how about this one? Verse 37, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And yet many times in our Christian walk, we don't feel like, who can be against us? Or I'm a conqueror. 
Oftentimes we have battles in our spiritual life that we just have not yet been able to win and overcome. And it can become very disheartening, discouraging, and exhausting. You know, the danger of this is not also on the side of defeat, but it's also on the side of victory. Victory. Follow with me. The Israelites are a great example of this. We see in the Old Testament over and over the Israelites being conquerors, being victorious in their um, battles against other nations. And as they found victory, they were conquerors. Their enemies were afraid of them. But Israel became complacent and apathetic towards their pursuit of God. And they began to trust in their own power, their own wisdom, their own insight, their own might. And as they did that, they also experienced defeat as well. So here this morning, whether you think that you're experiencing victory over your battles, you've got to be cautious. Or if you're experiencing overwhelming, continual defeat against some of your enemies. I hope that there is a sober-minded reality that we can wake ourselves up to this morning that we see here in Matthew chapter 16 that can give us the kind of confidence an unshakable um, ability to change the way that we approach our spiritual battle. We're calling this morning the winnable war. That this war that we're in is absolutely, with all certainty, able to be won. And we're going to see from this promise of Jesus in Matthew 16 why. What we're going to do this morning is two things. One is we're going to look at a couple promises and you got to hang with me as I lay the groundwork of what these two really basic promises of Jesus are. They're in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Two declarative promises of Jesus. Hang with me as I explain them. It's going to be pretty brief, just what they are. You're going to, you're going to, it's going to make sense pretty quickly. But what I want to spill out to at the end is why these two promises make a difference in how you battle spiritually. Okay? That's where we're going to go. Number one, promise number one, Jesus says, I will do something. Jesus comes into the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is a major military area. And he begins to unveil the essence of all of what's behind his coming to earth. And he asks the foundational question, what do people think about me? What do you think about me? Who do you think I am? What do you think about my identity? And Peter blurts out. We're kind of happy for Peter. He gets the question right this time. And he says to Jesus, uh, you are the Christ. And you're the son of the living God. And Jesus might have snapped his head around. I don't know. I'm just imagining, just uh, trying to picture the scene. Like, whoa, Peter, you got this right. And Jesus says to Peter, that's right. And listen. Flesh and blood, meaning uh, sources from this world, haven't revealed this to you. Nobody's really saying this about me. But my Father who is in heaven has made this clear. Yes, Peter, I'm telling you that just as you say I'm the Son of God and the Christ, you're Peter. Meaning, that's your identity, that's my identity. And on this rock I'll build my church. Jesus makes a promise and there's two really key aspects to it you got to get. Number one, the foundation of this promise. The foundation of the promise is this. On this rock. Now Jesus chooses his words carefully, thoughtfully. 
He says to Peter, remember his name was Cephas, then he changed his name to Peter, started calling him Peter, which means little rock, little stone. He says, you're Peter. And on this rock, totally different word, it's based on the same origin, but it's a different word. It means massive rock, large formation. That which comes out of the earth where you don't see its origin, you just see how big it is. Picture like a cliff sticking out of the side of a mountain. And you're looking at that huge boulder of a rock. And you know, I could stand on that and everything will be okay. And then you look over on that boulder and you see like some loose stone or gravel that if you stood on those things, you might slip because they're small. Peter is like that little stone. That's what he calls Peter. But he says, what you just said about me is a rock, a foundation. The foundation of all that Jesus is going to promise us is built on this concept. Who is he? And he says he's two things. He's the Christ. That was the Greek word for the word anointed or the word Messiah, the chosen of God, the one that God would anoint to be the Savior of all mankind. And, and Peter says, you are that anointed one. You're the chosen one to be the Savior. But you're not just the chosen one. You're not just anointed. You're also the Son of God. You're divine. You're sovereign. You're invaluable. You're precious. And your Lord. You see, Jesus can't really make the promises that he makes and then follow up with those promises by keeping them if he's not both the anointed Savior and the Son of God, the Lord. In fact, there are people in history who have made promises similar to Jesus. I'm a Savior. You should follow me. I, am, I know the way. I am the way. If you come after me, you'll have life. People have made this promise before. People have even made the promise, I'm God's son before, other people than Jesus. And yet they remain in the grave, and they remain bound by this enemy, the death, and they're unlike Jesus in every way. And Jesus, on the foundation of this, makes his promise, on this rock, on my identity, I will do something. So there's first the foundation of the promise. Secondly, there's the formation of this promise. Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, this statement is really simple in its breakout. Each element is really important. Jesus says, I will. There's a couple characteristics you've got to see about this statement. I will. First of all, it's future tense, meaning something's going to happen in the future that I'm going to build this thing. I will in the future. Number two, it's certain. Jesus doesn't say, I hope to. I'm planning on, I'm thinking about, I'm making arrangements, I'm contemplating, I'm consulting. He doesn't say any of those statements. With absolute certainty, Jesus says, I will. Something's going to happen. So it's in the future, it's certain, and it's independent. I will. He doesn't say, um, could some of you guys help me? He doesn't say, I'm gathering together a committee, we're going to have a couple conference calls, we're going to think about this, we're going to assign different tasks. By the time this project is the end, we're going to do this, guys, I promise. He doesn't say that. He says, independent, isolated, in the future, with all certainty, I will. What's he going to do? Number two, he's going to build. This is the phrase that they would use, probably Jesus' familiar language, because he's a carpenter. It means to erect or to build a place, like a house. 
raise up a place that can protect and provide safety for those that would dwell inside. You see, a house for them in this time and age when Jesus was living was not just something where they would watch HGTV and decide the color of the, sh uh, the shutters. They didn't think aesthetically about houses as much as we do. You know, we think about manicured lawns and landscaping and the color of the brick. And we, we, we contemplate those aspects. But home to them was, I need to build a stable and strong place so that my people can come inside. And when they're inside, they're safe. They can dwell there with safety. And so it's got to be on a good foundation and the structure has to be firm and able to withstand weather and elements and enemies. And Jesus said, I'm going to build something where inhabitants can be safe. And what's he going to build? He says, my church. My church. That means those who are called out by the voice of Jesus from the gospel. Church literally just means assembly. It's a generic term in this time. So you could call out a group of people to come together to form a specific group. So if you called out all the accountants when Jesus lived and got all the accountants together, you could say, hey, look, there's a church of accountants. They have all drawn out from society and gathered together because they're all one thing together. They're the church of the accountants. Does that make sense? And Jesus says, I'm going to call out people from the world who are going to dwell in safety in what I build for them who have responded to the call of the gospel. Sometime in the future, with all certainty, Jesus Christ is going to build a place of safety for those who respond to his call so they can come and dwell. That's the promise. Promise number two. Hades will not overcome it. Will not defeat it. He says the gates of, you might have the translation hell, the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Jesus in a city known for its military presence draws on this analogy. He's using language that is military base. And he says, first of all, the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. Now, the best word is the word Hades, which just literally means the unseen world where those who are dead go after this life. He is not using the word Gehenna, which is what we would translate hell, which is the place of torment and torture after this life is over. What he's talking about is death, the gates of death, the gates of Hades, where the dead go. And the phrase gate or the gates of is a military term. You see, in those days, cities that were fortified would have large structural walls built around their city to protect them. But in those walls, they would have to have gates. Now, this phrase gate is representing two things. First of all, it's representing the power of that city. You see, those walls could be 50 feet high and 50 feet thick, and nobody could knock them down, but you still have to have a gate. So the strength of the city is built on its gate. Can you walk up to that gate and knock that gate down? And if you could, it doesn't matter how strong your walls are. If that gate could be destroyed, then you're not very strong. So a gate represented its power, but it also represented its access. Gate is how you got in and how you got out. And Jesus says that the gates of the dead, the death, will not prevail or win against this thing that I'm going to build. That death up until Christ has always prevailed. You see, no one has able, ever been able to walk up to the gates of death knock it down and defeat it. No one has done this yet, nor has anyone passed through the gate of death 
and then come back out that gate. No one has done that until Jesus. You see, death is Satan's greatest power and our greatest pain. All right, you understand the promises? Jesus will build a place for safety for all of his believers to dwell. And death will not have power or victory over that place. Those are the promises. What in the world does that have to do with your spiritual battle tomorrow? Let's try to piece this together. Death is Satan's greatest weapon against you. Now, some of you that are a little bit older might begin to be thinking about death. Death might begin entering into your mind as you maybe you're growing a little bit older, maybe you have some health concerns. But for many people, we actually don't think about death very often. And so you might wonder, well, how is death Satan's greatest weapon? Because I don't really contemplate it very much. Well, as I mentioned, until Jesus Christ, no one has yet been able to defeat the enemy of death. And Jesus says, I'm going to do something that's going to defeat death. And the question is, what did Jesus do? How is he going to do this? Well, look down in verse 21 of chapter 16. After Jesus tells about this promise, he says in verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Jesus, in his death, yes, submitting to the power of death, burial, meaning his soul and his body were separated from each other, that his lifeless body lay in a tomb for three days while his soul was apart from it, and he was brought back to life and walked out of the gate of death saying, I now have conquered you. You have no power anymore. Death has no power anymore. Jesus defeated the two key aspects of death that control us, whether you know it or not. The first aspect is the power of death, the strength of death. Listen to what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that means you and I, in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook in the same things, that through death, Jesus, through death, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, death without a resurrection has incredible power over you. It gives essence of fear into our life. You might not know it or not, but if you approach this life without ever thinking there's a resurrection or anything after this, that fear begins to resonate in us. See, death without resurrection limits your life to the present. You only have this span of years in your life, and that's it, if there is no resurrection. And Satan uses us against us in one of two ways. In one way, he tempts you to indulge. For example, your self-talk might be this. Well, if this is all I have, this hopefully 80 or 90 or 100 years on this earth, I better live it up because this is all I've got. Like Paul would mock in 1 Corinthians, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die if there's nothing else. So let's indulge. Fear of missing out, so I've got to be in and indulge. The other side is this, you become incredibly timid and scared. This is all I've got. This 70, 80, 90 years of life, this is all I've got. I can't mess it up. What if I mess it up? 
And Satan uses both extremes of death to his great advantage of the power of fear. Satan, fear is Satan's tool of manipulation that leads you to sin. Either don't miss out or don't mess up. And along comes Jesus to crush that fear. Secondly, not just the power of death, but the sting of death. In 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of the resurrection, Paul would say it this way, quoting, he says, O death, where is your victory? O Hades, where is your sting? You see, death without pardon, without forgiveness, limits your eternity to life without God. Those that go into the grave without the promise of a resurrection and without the promise of forgiveness have sealed their eternal fate to life without God. And in Jesus Christ, we have complete and continual forgiveness, available and abundant, that you and I can go to the grave forgiven. Now here's how this changes everything. This changes the way that you approach your spiritual battle. As you go out tomorrow and you're going to battle the things that are in front of you, whether it's addiction to something on the internet, to a drug, or to overworking, or to fear of people, whether it's a, um, lying or stealing or cheating, what, whatever it is, whatever you struggle and fight against, as you go out tomorrow and you fight against that, these truths have to change the way you battle because... Death is defeated. Sin is forgiven. And you now have certainty, not just of life after death, but of a perfect life after death in a perfect place in the presence of God. You see, this is the basis that you actually need to fight with confidence, both with passion and patience, with incredible excitement to go after what you really want because of what you were made for, but also with endurance when you have hiccups and shortfalls. You see, this reality should light a fire in us, knowing what the future holds, that I will die, yes, in this life, but be resurrected to eternity. And when I die, I'm not sealed my fate apart from God, but with God, and I will dwell with Him. But it also should stabilize you, knowing that when you do experience defeats, it's not forever. And so when you lose a battle, here or there, when you fall short, it doesn't mean the war has been lost. It means the skirmish has been lost. That's got to change the way that you battle. That's got to change what you think about. So tomorrow, if you fight and you fight and you do well, but then you fall, Satan wants you to obsess over when you've fallen and forget that the war has been won. That's what he wants you to focus on. This war has been won. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 how to fight that war once we win when he says in verses 1 through about verse 14, I won't read it all, but he says this in verse 3, Do you not know, don't you remember, Christian, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore by baptism into death, that in order as just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the death, in his death, like his, we shall, shirt, shall certainly be in the resurrection of Jesus as well. Now listen to verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now listen, verse 11. Here's what you need to do because of this truth. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. If you believe the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has defeated death, that you will live eternally, that hell will, Hades will not hold you, that you will live eternally, and sin has been defeated, that you will not live eternally apart from God, but with God. If you believe that, when you approach this war, even when you fall, do not reckon yourself as the old man who constantly falls, but he says in verse 11 that each day, day in and day out, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You see, when Jesus went into the tomb, there was a huge rock put in front of it. It was sealed, guarded by Roman soldiers. And by the power of God, God brought out of that tomb only that which he wanted. Do you remember what stayed in the tomb? The resurrected life of Jesus came out of the tomb, but what stayed? His burial cloths. The garments that he wore when he died. Now here's the point. When you were baptized into Jesus Christ, you went into the tomb. Your old self died. And Jesus brings out of that tomb only that which he wants. The resurrected life. And what Satan does in this spiritual battle is when you fall tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, when you're wrestling with what you're wrestling with and you slip and you fall, whether it's in your mind or your action, what he does is say, you've never changed. You're that old person. You've lost. You're not a Christian. He battles against you. And what you have to do, what Paul says here is reckon yourself, consider yourself. I'm no longer my old man. What stayed in the grave was my old self. What's come out of that watery grave was my new self. And you look Satan in the eye and say, this battle is over. This war has been won. And I fight with the confidence that I cannot lose. And you'll start to win. You're losing because you're thinking like a spiritual loser. You'll win when you think like the victor of Jesus Christ. You've got to let that person die who died in the grave of the water of baptism. The one who always loses. And when you stumble, remember the promise of God in Philippians 1.6 where he said, God will finish the good work he started in you if you'll let him. Let's stand and sing. If you need help, you can come.